Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I have Professor Tim Smythe and Dr. Tom Davies. Dr. Davies is a marine conservation ecologist at the University of Plymouth in the UK. His research seeks to understand the impacts and management of man-made global change on ecosystems and human environmental interrelationships. He has published research on impacts and management of a variety of global change issues, most notably artificial light at night, or ALAN. ALAN is a recently emergent and rapidly growing focus for global change research in the 21st century, with ramifications for ecosystems, human health, and human environmental interrelationships. Dr. Davies is Principal Investigator of the Natural Environmental Research Council funded Artificial Light Impacts on Coastal Ecosystems, ALICE. Got a lot of acronyms here. Um, the project, which combines expertise from the UK's leading marine science institutions to tackle fundamental gaps in our understanding of coastal ecosystem systems' responses to ALAN and how we can manage them. He has published more than 30 peer-reviewed papers on ecological light pollution and is an internationally recognized authority on Allen impacts in marine ecosystems. His um, uh, social media will be posted on the Restoring Darkness website. We're also honored to be joined by Professor Tim Smythe. He is the head of, head of science for marine biogeochemistry and observations at Plymouth Marine Laboratory. This involves leading a team of around 20 people ranging from PhD, PhD students to experienced senior scientists across a range of disciplines, from air, sea exchange, nutrient cycling, to molecular science within the broad remit of marine biogeochemistry. His brief also includes oversight of the Atlantic Meridional Transect, AMT, as well as the Western Channel Observatory, which he has been leading for the past 15 years. Since joining PML in 1997 as a data analyst and algorithm developer for the then newly launched CYFS, Wi-Fi, YFS, we'll talk, he'll tell me about it in one second, Ocean Color Satellite. His research interests have broadly encompassed theoretical and experimental atmospheric and in-water optics. He has a strong interest in developing innovative technologies for automated marine measurements, including the WCO boys, ship emissions, and atmospheric aerosols. He has around 280 days at sea, including being the chief scientist on two Atlantic meridional transect expeditions between the UK and the Falkland Islands. His current research interest is on the various impact of artificial light pollution in the marine environment, where he has published the first ever atlas showing its global extent. So just before we get to Professor Smythe and Dr. Davies, I want to ask you guys real quickly to acknowledge our corporate um, sponsor, Evluma. Go to evluma.com. There's Dark Sky section on their website. You can choose various Dark Sky fixtures for your projects. And also... If you want to support this show or you want to support some of our friends in the movement at Save Wasatch Back Skies, you can go to RestoringDarkness.com right now and you can click Darkness Campaigns. 
And there's a campaign there for the Wasatch Back County. They're fighting a, a change to their lighting ordinance. And every dollar you donate will be matched by the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. That's right, up to $3,500. So if you want to help out the good folks in Utah battle light pollution, you, go, you click Darkness Campaigns. If you want to help out the Lighting and Darkness Foundation in general, you just click the Donate link right there. And why not become a monthly donor? That's right, folks. So go to RestoringDarkness.com. Professor Smythe and Dr. Davies. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to start with Professor Smythe. Um, why don't you just give us an opening on how you two came together, and then we'll go over to Dr. Davies. Yeah, so I suppose uh, Tom and I started working together about seven or eight years ago now. It was a sort of a chance meeting uh, down in Cornwall. Um, so uh, it's the county next to where we are, are now. Um, and uh, we started talking about uh, the impacts of artificial light in the marine environment. And I didn't believe really what Tom was saying to start with, hmm. because I didn't think that artificial light would be at the intensities uh, great enough within the water itself to really impact or have any hmm. impact at all upon uh, marine organisms. And the reason for that scepticism was because I really come from a background of operating optical and bio-optical uh, instruments in the daytime. So you referred earlier to the CWIFS ocean color satellite. That's kind <laughs> of where I did my, you were nearly right. Um, you know, that's where I started off my research was looking at ocean color remote sensing. And we're used to looking at uh, light levels that are eight orders of magnitude. So nearly a billion times brighter than the uh, the artificial light uh, pollution that we're actually concerned about, to give you an idea of scale. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we started. We started talking, and um, I then started um, doing some very preliminary in-water light modelling of then so how deep that artificial light gets within the water, and that was what convinced me that this was a really good area of of research that we needed to be getting into. Um, so. I suppose fast forward to about three years ago, uh, that was when we published this global atlas of artificial light at night under the sea. And uh, that was a real game changer because then we could see the global extent hmm. of, of the problem in the marine environment. And uh, sort of the, the bottom line statistic, I suppose, is that artificial light at night can impact marine biology over about two million square kilometers of the oceans um, so that's so if you if you've got an, a, a, I, I suppose in the states you'd be talking about the size of of, of different um, states in the united states i haven't got that statistic to hand generally in the united kingdom we talk about the size of wales um, mm -hmm. so wales the country um, and it's about a hundred times the size of of wales is impacted um, by artificial light at night I believe Canada is about 2 million square kilometers, something like that. Um, right. So Canada is a pretty big country. Dr. Davies, would you like to expand on um, Tim's opening there? Yeah, I think, you know, we, when, when we first met, that's right. I mean, I, I was trying to convince Tim and a number of other people that um, we should be looking at this issue. And um, Tim, Tim, he's kind of taken the hit there a little bit because he wasn't the only one that was skeptical. <laughs> there are a lot of skeptical people um, and I did during those times I was spending quite a lot of time trying to convince people I think 
I think the thing that made people more skeptical than anything else was a, a lack of understanding of partly the amount of artificial light there is in the environment. So firstly, you've got to think about the fact that um, when you're looking out at sea, you're looking from a lit place. And so the perception is that there's no light out at sea. But of course, in the same way as when you're looking out of your lit living room window onto a dark street, you think it's completely dark outside. When you're stood on a dark street, actually there's mm -hmm. quite a lot of light around. So there's a, there's a perception issue, uh, perception bias there from human beings because we mostly live on land. We don't spend a huge amount of our time at sea and so we don't experience the light at sea. And the second part of the issue is that people really didn't appreciate how sensitive marine organisms really are to light. They were very right to point out that there's very little artificial light in the ocean. That's, that's a fair point, I think, and a reasonable comparison. If you were to compare it to sunlight, for example, you would think there's not a lot of artificial light in the ocean. But, um, but marine organisms are incredibly sensitive to light. So to give one notable example that we've used consistently in our research is um, Calanus copepods. So these copepods, they undergo these daily vertical migrations where the sun comes up, um, they migrate down through the water column and when it goes down, they come up to the surface layers to feed. Um, now, in the Arctic during the winter, there's not a sunrise or a sunset. Um, what they actually start doing is they start performing these dial vertical migrations in response to moonlight. And they can detect moonlight beyond 50 meters depth. So they are incredibly sensitive to light. And that's just one example of the very high sensitivity to low light levels in marine ecosystems. Um, corals are, are another example. They use regimes of moonlight to time pr with precision the, mm -hmm. um, the timing of their broadcast spawning. Um, and so they can sense very, very slight variations in moonlight intensity. And so we only need a very little bit of artificial light in a marine environment to disrupt these biological processes in the sea. And I think that was the, the second part of the message that I really needed to hit home was that, yes, there's not very much light pollution in the sea, but it's not how much there is. It's whether or not there's enough to have biological impacts that's important. Yeah, but I would say that the vast majority of it, other than oil platforms and wind farms, would be concentrated on the coasts, which where mm. which is where most of the, I would say, a large portion of the life, it's underwater life, would exist. Would that not? Yeah, go ahead, uh, Professor Smith. Smith, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely you're absolutely right. I mean, I think our eyes are naturally drawn. You know, when you're out at sea, our eyes are naturally drawn to those pinpoints of light that are actually um yes they're very bright um but if you think about the whole hemisphere of the sky they're actually quite a small proportion of it the the greatest impact from artificial light is actually the far field effect which is the sky glow that's caused mm. by um, artificial light at night so you know that when you travel out from a city center through the suburbs into the rural and then into the very very rural areas you know, you get that transition away from that bronze dome that you see over mm -hmm. uh, our big cities. And then when you travel out into the into the rural areas, the very rural areas where you're hundreds of kilometers away from any settlements, that's when you can start to see the night sky or you can see the night sky once again. So it's that sky glow effect 
which is really important for this. That's what gives artificial light at night its reach. So if you think about some of the very clear waters that there are in the Mediterranean, for example, and where you've got that urban ribbon development around the coastline of um, southern, southern Europe, um, where you've got very, very bright lights and very clear waters, that's where you start to see uh, the, the, the light going out to say 20, 30, 40 kilometers offshore and then penetrating you know, to 40, 50 meters down into the water column. Um, so that's where we start to see that when you've got that combination of bright city lights, which give you that sky glow effect, um, and then you put that right next to very clear waters like you have in the Mediterranean, that's where you see the greatest impact or greatest spatial extent of the impact. Dr. Davies, what is the what are the consequences or what are the broad impacts of this this pollution on on our, our wildlife in the sea? So it, it depends which form of light pollution you're you're talking about, as Tim was alluding to there. So um, th there's two principal forms. There's what we call direct light pollution, which you can imagine is the the spill of light from a street lamp or from an oil platform and to the sea below, or the the lighting from a ship. And then there's this sky glow effect, the the light that's scattered in the atmosphere and has a much larger geographical um, extent. And um, the reason why they have different types of impact is not just about the intensity of the light, but the primary mechanism of impact. So at large spatial scales, what Skyglow is doing is it's primarily disrupting um, processes, biological processes that are guided by moonlight. Um, and these include things like um, lunar guided celestial migrations, where you have organisms using the moon as a compass to navigate around um, landscapes on our coast and around seascapes, and they include using the moon as a clock to time precision biological events, such as the example with the coral broadcast spawning that I was alluding to earlier. And um, we've been doing research for a number of years now to try and figure out the extent to which um, sky glow from cities can have these, these kinds of impacts on um, moonlight guided biological processes, and it transpires that they do, that the moon that if you, you use Alan at intensities um, equivalent to um, artificial sky glow, it does disorientate um, organisms that are using the moon as a compass to migrate around. Um, and it also does disrupt the timing of precision broadcast spawning events in species like coral as well. When it comes to moving more into kind of our ports and harbours where you've got direct light pollution, you have a whole different array of biological effects that come into play. Um, firstly, these can target all different stages of organism life cycles. So um, one of the principal effects, for example, is on the recruitment of new um, animals onto habitats or substrates. Um, Many of your, your listeners, your watchers may be familiar with um, going down to um, the sea and seeing things like barnacles growing on pier pilings, that kind of thing. And um, all of these organisms, these marine organisms that have an adult life stage, which is essentially stationary on a solid substrate like a barnacle, and they also have a, a larval life phase, a bit like an insect, where they metamorphose through different stages, different forms. And that is a free swimming life stage that moves around in the water. And when it comes to becoming an adult, it has to make the most important decision of its life. Where is it going to call home? 
And that decision affects um, its food security and it affects um, its ability to, to reproduce and produce offspring into the next generation. So it's an absolutely critical decision for that organism to make. And um, to do this, they use a, a number of different cues. And one of the cues they use is light. And so what we've been able to demonstrate is that um, artificial light spill onto these structures like pier pilings and pontoons can fundamentally change the structure of the what we call biofouling assemblages, which are essentially the assemblages of invertebrates that grow like mats on these, these structures. And it does that through these two mechanisms, which are firstly this mechanism where it, it, it deters some species from settling on the substrate and it encourages others to settle on the substrate. And then secondly, once settled, it can actually elevate levels of predation by fish on those mm. invertebrates. And that's the other key impact is this impact on the behavior of predators. Mm -hmm. So you've got one impact, which is on the recruitment of new individuals into ecosystems. And then you've got another impact operating at the other end of the scale, which is on the, um, the behavior of predators. So much like um, I'm sure you've heard many stories on your podcast about moths aggregating around yep. streetlights, we have exactly mm -hmm. the same thing that happens in marine ecosystems. The small fish gather to eat the midges at the water's surface underneath the bridge lights. The big fish gather to eat the small fish and such and so forth. So there does seem to be probably the most profound change in terms of um, on ecology, the most profound impact that seems most widespread of light pollution on ecosystems is this change in predator behavior. The mm. ability of predators to discriminate prey items at the nighttime, to actually recognize that and start to focus their, their efforts in artificially lit areas and exploit um, resources of, of other animals that are either concentrated by lighting or just more easy to see because of the lighting. That's the other principal mode of care. Mm. Dr. Davies, you're moving to your right as you're speaking there. You're getting comfortable. I like it. But just center yourself in the camera there for the folks watching. Yes. Um, the, it, Dr. Ziebele Schroer told me a little bit about that. I don't know if I just butchered her German name, I, you know, but she had told me a little bit about this predation situation with the smaller fish and the bigger fish. My question would be, so we've been transitioning our lighting systems um, from high-pressure sodium lights, HPS or sodium, whatever. There's different terms for it I, um, but what we're talking about is the orange or that bronze dome that uh, Professor Smythe was mentioning earlier is turning white now so mm -hmm. as we you know you I can observe this as somebody you know who's in the lighting industry and passionate about this issue I can at, at my parents my, my father-in-law has a cottage up north and if you look to the southwest you can see a bronze dome over Bob Cajun where they haven't changed their lights to LED and if you look further south above you can see a whiter dome, which is where they have changed their lights to LED. Is there, my first question is, is it getting worse? Obviously, I, I would say for sure this problem is getting worse, but how much worse is it getting? And is the transition to LED really accelerating the damage? I guess we'll start with Professor Smythe. Yes. So uh, first of all, I think it's for all the right reasons that we're shifting across to LED. I mean, it, it makes absolute sense when we're when we're talking about there being uh, well in the UK, we talk about there being an energy crisis. It may not be quite so acute over over your side of the pond, um, but you know, the council. So our local council, for example, have been actively seeking us out to say about the LED light issue. And they're, they're still looking to cut costs in terms of, yes, they're shifting towards LEDs, but then they want to limit 
the usage of LEDs. So do they do it with dimming? Do they do it with um, time that they, you know, that, that the lights go off at midnight and only come back on again at four o'clock in the morning? You know, all these kind of strategies that they're going for. So I think, first of all, yes, we should, you know, applaud that, that people are wanting to go to much more energy efficient lighting. The flip side of this is that the LED lights obviously emit light in much the blue the much bluer end of the spectrum than was ever possible. So the low pressure sodium was much more in the yellow end of the spectrum. And we do find that that, that blue end of the spectrum in particular is uh, does elicit biological response. Um, so and also in humans, it's 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 mm -hmm. known that there is a detrimental effect on human health. So hence why your your smart uh, your cell phone your smart what do you call a smart is it a smartphone over there uh, smart I, I cell think, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's smart or not, um, but uh, we call them smartphones. Yes. Uh, so know. so your smartphone. So you now use the word phone. Um, so, so we've got um, we what we do with these uh, smartphones is we've got the night setting which means mm. that you don't get that blue you know those blue photons being emitted into your eyes to mm. keep you awake at night mm. so you know exactly the same thing we we know that there are harmful uh, impacts on human health uh, from these lights and you know it's projected that by you know in a few years time i think it's by 2030 that 85% globally of um, all street lights will be led for all the right reasons but we do see that they're much much brighter so that they have you know that there's all sorts of in, uh, instances of where the glare can be be harmful and also we find that within the water itself so if you do some some optical calculations you can very quickly show that particularly where the water is very clear that that blue end of the spectrum really penetrates very deep mm. into the water column mm. so we're we're effectively changing um, the is, so already we know that with the with the, the the lighting systems we've got, the more that we go across to the LED, the deeper that that light is going to penetrate within the water column, and we know that the blue light itself, um, you know, elicits uh, biological response. So it, it, it's a difficult one because for all the right reasons we're going to LEDs, but actually we need to also be very cognizant of the uh, the negative biological and impacts on human health that there uh, are likely and have proven to be. Um, what are the strategies then that we can overcome that? I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a good case to be made for making sure that you don't waste photons. It's a bit like your dad saying that you need to turn your bedroom light off when you're not in your bedroom. You know, it's that kind of attitude we need to take. You know, treat each photon as something which is, you know, take an energy to produce and actually photons that go up into the sky are wasted and, light. Or a, a, a waste it's, it's a waste you know it's a waste you know, of energy and it's i'm going to jump in here and interrupt you professor smythe because you're right in my power zone so i'm on the front lines of the lighting industry so light fixtures every single day okay and we have found and we're not debating the societal benefits of energy efficiency that's not worth even debating okay we should definitely become more energy efficient 100 percent agree the problem is that we find ourselves once again in Javon's paradox, right? Where the cheaper something becomes. So what we've seen over the last 10 years is the massive reduction in cost of LED light fixtures and continual improvements in their efficiency. So you, you, let's say you have a 70 watt HPS. 
you could easily replace that with a dark sky compliant 10 watt LED light fixture. I'm not kidding you, maybe even 5 watt. We can control it, we can tune the color, we can change the colors, we can dim them, we can raise the light level, all this technology is there. But what we see, and I don't know what happens in the UK, but I imagine in the Anglo-Saxon sphere, it's pretty much the same thing going on. I mean, maybe mainland Europe is doing a better job than you know, Britain, Canada, America, and Australia, and the rest of these places that speak English. But what you see is that why would we change the lights and have less light? That doesn't make any sense to any customer we have, okay? And then if you also say to a customer, um, you know, not only do you, are you going to get less light, but we're going to make it a warm color. Well, why would I make it a warm color? I want that white light. And so all of our instincts at the at the end, so you guys are coming from the science perspective saying, no, stop, stop, <laughs> Dr. Davies and, and, and Professor Smythe, no, no, don't do this. But it doesn't make sense to our customers. And so that's where I think we need regulation and we need the lighting industry to step up and, and really take charge of the, the issue and say, no, we can't do this anymore. And, and um, that, it, it can only be done, it, it cannot be done through the energy efficiency argument. You're going to save money because people are okay with a 30-watt, 40-watt, 100-watt LED light fixture. They like it. And it's not a 250-watt HPS or metal halide. It's 100 watts, so we are saving energy. Yeah, but you have doubled your light output there now, and you've directed it in a way that it's 90% of it is flying off in all sorts of crazy directions. Yeah, but I like it that way. And uh, I want to keep my light that way. Dr. Davies, can you? how do we get out of that trap, and how bad are the consequences of all this um, LED changing, irresponsible LED conversion. That's what I would call it. It's like an irresponsible. It's not acknowledging the scope of all the problems. Yeah, I mean, I think probably, I mean, I'd agree with the premise of what you're saying. Irresponsible seems like a, a bit of a strong word. It's difficult, difficult for people to act irresponsibly in a landscape with very little regulation, um, as you quite rightly point out. Um, you know, people don't have the, the guidance or the information at their disposal to make informed decisions, which is very disappointing. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's where we find ourselves at the moment. And, I, and I, think, I think we should probably, both the lighting industry, us as ecologists and just general society, should, shouldn't necessarily beat ourselves up so much about this issue because LEDs only came to the market in a big way since 2011. You know, we, we've only had about a decade of this growth in the market. So we're still getting used to how to use this new technology, what it's good for, mm -hmm. how to fine-tune our use of it to you know, improve our lives and, and improve the environment, hopefully. So we, we were early days and we've just gone through the, you know, you can imagine the first phase of the big LED rollout, you know, sort of slowly coming to a, to an end. That means that all of these light fixtures are now in place, which means the lighting engineers are probably looking for the next new thing, right? Um, and so what is the next new thing? And that's where these questions come in. Okay, so can, can we do this in a, mm -hmm. in a more ecologically friendly way? What are the issues? And we do know, as you quite rightly point out, that there are a huge number of options that are made available to us by LEDs themselves, like spectral manipulation and the dimming and the part night lighting and all these kinds of, of opportunities that we have in terms of um, much more intelligent street lighting management systems. And um, I think, I think the problem that we have at the moment is we don't know which approach is best. 
And so, um, you know, quite often you'll have uh, a local authority or a parish council or maybe even a lighting engineer come to you and say, which light should I use? And you're kind of scratching your head and thinking, it depends on which part of the environment you don't want to mess with. Because mm. um, that's, that, that's basically the response. It's kind of like, do, do I use the, the amber lights, the green lights or the red lights? Like, mm. Well, you're not going to be able to use any part of the visual spectrum there's no part of the visual spectrum where there isn't an evolutionary adaptation to light in the natural environment you see. So, and, and the problem with focusing your impact in one part of the spectrum, so if you were to switch to red lighting, which I'm not saying people would go for, but I'm just no. using it as an example, you'd obviously have to massively improve, it, it increase the amount of light you're producing in that region of the spectrum to achieve the same brightness to the human eye. And so you're kind of focusing all your impact there. So if there is one critical ecological response in that part of the spectrum, then you're increasing the impact in that area, if you see what I'm saying, rather than mm -hmm. distributing it across the whole of the spectrum. So that becomes a very difficult set of trade-offs to make as a, a, as a conservationist when you don't have the relevant information at your disposal. So I think, I think for us at the moment is, you know, I think the next kind of 10 years are all about understanding how do we use this technology in a more ecologically friendly way. And I think that the technology allows us to tailor it to specific circumstances and situations. And I think that's probably the way that it should be managed. There's, there's no kind of one solution fits all. You know, it might be that coastal lighting and coastal cities require one set of solutions and cities that are further inland require another set of solutions. Um, and it, it entirely depends on specific situations. But one thing I do know is we need a lot more science to be able to properly inform um, this kind of decision-making process when it comes to designing um, street lighting installations. Not to argue with someone um, who is Dr. Davies, but I'm going to push back a little bit on you. There is the acronym Responsible Outdoor Light at Night. And I, I'm not saying the people, the customers have done something irresponsible, but I will argue that the lighting industry has largely ignored this issue for the last 40 years, intentionally. Um, and the purpose of the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, which is started by a lighting industry association, is to politely and forcefully, though, let the lighting industry understand that this represents our largest, biggest, most, most important revenue play there is. So right now, darkness restoration and night preservation is an amazing opportunity for the lighting industry and to sell lots of light fixtures. And so while, you know, the, the, I agree with you that there's no irresponsibility on part of the customers. I think that is a harsh term to say that a, a city council, for example, or a factory here in Toronto, you know, made this mistake and it's irresponsible. They don't have the information. The lighting industry did have the information and they ignored it and they've known it for a long time. And when LEDs came out, the lighting industry completely forgot everything they knew about lighting and abandoned all the principles and re-increased light pollution massively. They reintroduced flicker as an issue, the uh, uh, light modulation. So you got to remember, not only are those LED lights shining into the ocean, but they're also flickering on and off 100 times a second, right? So you have this pulsing of light that's happening. Now, they, a lot of these issues have been recently resolved, 
but they were introduced and the lighting industry knew about flicker. The lighting industry knew about light pollution. So I'm going to push back and say it was irresponsible, Dr. Davis. So on that note, I think it was irresponsibility that led to a lot of these problems. Um, and I think it was motivated by, uh, you know, a, uh, a massive push to make a lot of money. And I'm okay with making money. I'm a businessman myself. But um, I think we have to be more responsible. The other issue is like insurance companies and lawsuits and these types of things, which always assume that there isn't enough light. If there's a, if there's a, a, a ship, two ships crash in a harbor, it's not because there's not enough light. We need more light. We need more light. And so the answer is always more light. Um, there's my little rant. And that's why you should go to RestoringDarkness.com and you can donate to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation where we're going to fund this research. We're going to create the certifications and the ed educational programs and we're going to help advocates on the ground with their lighting ordinance battles. Um, Prof Professor um, Smythe, talk to me a little bit about why we need to convince the environmental movement that light pollution is not a metaphor, that light pollution is pollution. Yes, I mean, I think that's that's a very good question. I think we we live in a world where there are there are single stressors, and I think we and, and we also then live in a world where there are multiple stressors going on. And with the climate, with the climate crisis, it's it's that's a really difficult problem to solve. Mm. But I think that the the light pollution issue is something that we can have. A demonstrable impact on relatively you know, without actually thinking about it too hard um, I think in the terrestrial sphere eco ecologists are convinced that you know artificial light at night is a is a is a pollutant um, we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of it being a pollutant in the marine environment mm -hmm. and actually where where we're getting most traction at the moment is actually marrying up different stresses with each other. So mm. Tom and I have just uh, won some grant funding to look at the impacts of where you've got co-located light pollution with noise pollution. Mm. Um, so they're not content, the funders are not content with saying that, that light pollution at night is, is a difficult problem. They then want to put it with something that is completely physically different uh, with the, uh, the, no the underwater noise uh, pollution. So I think, you know, I think as, as scientists, I think that there's, there's, there's some great um, strides that we can make over the next few years on that kind of multiple stressor effect and actually how we bring that together within an understanding of bioinformatics. So actually, looking at what um, bio biology is, be how biology is being changed at the at the molecular level as well. Um, so I think that would be my rather roundabout answer to your question. Well, sound pollution and light pollution go together. They're, they, they, wherever there's a lot of light pollution, there's a lot of sound pollution. Um, it seems to be, I spoke to another fellow from the UK, I'm just looking on my... Um, uh, on my on my podcast list, he was uh, he, he talks about the the term uh, tranquility as um, as something that needs to be understood when in environmental policy. Doctor Davies, uh, do you want to expand on this a little bit from your end? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Um, I think tranquility is a really nice way of putting it as well. Um, I, I, the way that um, Miller put it was uh, he used a phrase called the extinction of experience. 
Mm. And uh, what that basically refers to is it means our, our loss of connection with the natural world through um, a combination of different factors, which are mostly driven through um, urbanisation and the, the, the consequences of it. Um, we are looking at a situation in the 21st century where the vast majority of the human population will be living in urban centres. Those people will not have access to natural cycles of light, let alone a view of the Milky Way. Um, and that disconnect with the natural environment um, is part of losing tranquility, I guess. And I think you're right as well to point out that light pollution you know, does happen in conjunction with noise pollution in quite a lot of situations. And inherently, cities are noisy, bustly, disruptive places that are difficult to relax in, in, in a way that people don't go to cities to relax. They don't live in cities to relax. They, they live there because they like that. They like the hustle and bustle of it. Um, uh, but I think that there is probably more that can be done to help to offer tranquil spaces. We often think about um, the nature conservation as being about conserving landscapes for nature and mm. not actually about conserving spaces for people. Um, and, you know, in your neck of the woods, um, you're very fortunate in that you have very large areas of wilderness habitat that you can experience where you will find genuine tranquility. Um, mm. We're pretty thin on the ground on that in the UK. Um, you know, if you want tranquility, you've pretty much got to get on a boat <laughs> go, <laughs> go to the middle of the sea. Um, and that's kind of, you know, there are some other parts of the UK, but you can count them probably on two hands where you might find genuine tranquility. Um, and so we do have a serious problem with that. I, I do think that more could be done to try and find tranquility within our urban spaces as well. And that's about just finding a more harmonious relationship with the natural world. And part of that could be about, you know, thinking about these concepts such as chrono cities, where you're trying to design um, cities in a way that allows people to remain in contact with the fundamental cycles of light that drive their, um, their physiology and metabolism, for example so that people go to bed at a time when they should, so that people wake up at a time when they should and see what the impacts are on their health and well-being. I think that would be, that would be a, a good way forward. But unfortunately, um, yeah, the, one of the reasons why uh, I think, you know, as you alluded to earlier, that the, uh, the lighting industry was, was irresponsible, as you put it, with the, the rollout of lights was probably because, you know, it, it created so much societal opportunity and by societal opportunity, I mean, they made money out of it, but also lots of businesses made money out of it because it created the nighttime economy. And I, I think that's the, the biggest problem that we face now is we seem to have created a, um, a, a, a nocturnal or a, um, a crepuscular society. And um, that, that, that society seems to now um, have a very, very strong impact on our economic well-being and it's, it's difficult to make arguments for saying we need to turn the lights off because turning the lights off is shutting down a third of the economy which is difficult this idea that humans are not a nocturnal species um it seems foreign like if you say that we're not nocturnal but i mean you know we aren't and I, I think that the, you know, there, the, and without getting into a conversation about economics, which would, you know, um, you know, which is a, another sort of 
tangent to run down. Um, just to say, Mike Houghton, uh, I just pulled up the episode, episode 70 of North York Moors National Park. He's working on that tranquility for you guys in England. So check out episode 70, folks, while, while you're listening to this. But yeah, that, you know, there, you know, is there, is there balance? Can we, uh, uh, Professor Smythe, can we, can we, you said we can fix this or, or can we just make it better? Or can we just do less damage? What's the right way to describe if we were to adopt, let's say, let's say, for example, we were to adopt the lighting control systems we need and sensors and dimming. And the, I just saw a light fixture came out that understands the phases of the moon and will dim itself according to the cloud conditions and the, the moonlight that, that, that's available to it and all this. Is it that, can we fix our problems or can we just stop doing so much damage? Like, is, is that a better way to describe it? I think I'd like to say yes to all your questions. So I think we can. I think we can do better. Um, you know, I think I, I've not heard of that uh, solution before. That you've got, uh, you know, you've got your 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 lunar phase as well, which is kind of then controlling your light fixtures. Um, and I think that I think we can start to use technology much more uh, to to help us in this. So um, we were in discussions uh, recently with the city council, and they were talking about having radars attached to each each street light to then detect how much traffic was on the road, for example, and then light accordingly. Actually, they could have had a smarter solution actually, using the apps that we all use to see how busy each road is that we're mm -hmm. about to travel on, actually having the, the Google Maps technology or, or whatever the, the traffic flow technology is to actually then decide on the level of lighting is a much better way of then uh, controlling your streetlights rather than having expensive radars attached to to, to lights. Um, I think I think we have to be aware of of the the great strides that we've made forward over the last sort of 150 years in terms of um, it's been it, it has emancipated us to to a degree in terms of having um, the ability to light up dark places. So. The, one of the things we're particularly uh, engaged with at the moment is the socioeconomic impacts in uh, developing countries. So like, well, not quite developing, so Chile, for example, mm. and what their perception of uh, dark skies is and what it means for them to um, start to change their lighting technology. They're very keen in Chile, for example, on their dark sky status globally because sure. they've got the Atacama Desert, which is uh, very mm -hmm. high in altitude. It's a very dry environment, which means that their vision of the view, their view of the night sky is possibly the best on Earth. Um, you know, even even if you go into the middle of the ocean, the part of the problem you've got is that, you know, the atmosphere is full of um, mm. absorbing gases. So so you can't necessarily mm. see the night sky um, quite as well as you can in Chile. But it's interest. It's going to be interesting to see what the response socioeconomically is, just, you know, suggestions of what we're going to do with our lighting. And we have to bring people. I, I, I'm a firm believer that we need to bring people along with us for the ride, because if mm. we're just, you know, always saying what you're doing is wrong, you must change what you do without sort of co-designing where we want to get to. You know, where do we want to get to as a species in terms of how we light our cities, how we how we light them more wisely um, and then work out this. That's where you want to get to. How do we get there? And I think that's a kind of a co-design. I know. With society. I know how to get there. I'll tell you right now. Right. We need the lighting industry to embrace this issue, to stop 
to stop because if the if someone's going to fix it, guess who? It's going to be the lighting people that are going to go out and change the light fixtures. Surprise! Guess what? Lighting contractors, lighting distributors, lighting agents, lighting manufacturers are going to be the ones to fix the problem. And if it if it ever gets fixed. And so what I'm telling you guys, all you guys listening out there, this doesn't mean less money. It means more money, more light fixtures, better light fixtures. And if you're into lighting controls and you're listening to this, there is no better application. Stop developing it for the inside and start developing lighting control systems for municipal street lighting, for ports, for all these other areas. One of the tragedies um, that I see is... Uh, in, in, in North America and in England, I hear when I interview people, I, I've interviewed so many Germans about advanced technology to address light pollution on windmills, all this kind of technology they're developing over there. Anybody that works in technology in North America works for addictions, Facebook, casinos. Uh, we're wasting our intellectual resources on things that do not pr- increase our productivity. Like, I'm sorry, social media is not that important, okay? Like, it's not a, it's not, it, we don't need Twitter to work better. We need, we need these technologists and these really smart people to get out of those companies and, and, and into companies where they can actually solve problems. That's an opinion. Um, but one more thing I want to ask you guys about before we, we're all, I can't believe we're at 45 minutes already. Holy mackerel. Um, we have two concepts at the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, uh, Dr. Davies. One is darkness restoration. And that concept talks about how the difficulty of restoring darkness to our light polluted cities, incremental work, lots of research needed, lots of technology. How, how do we balance people's expectations of what the light used to be and transition them to less light or what, all these different things. But night preservation, which is a different concept, where you're talking about the salt flats in Chile where 40% of all telescopes, human telescopes are based in that area. Very, there's an easy argument to say no more, no uplight. Everything must be shielded. Like where we have these nighttime environments that where night is, exists, we have to preserve it, Dr. Davies. And I think that th- that's an easy solution. It means no uplight, shielded lights, keep it the way it is, low Kelvin temperatures, all these other things. But the darkness restoration is much more difficult. How can we separate those two? Because the term dark skies kind of convolves everything. People don't really know what you're talking about. How do we focus them on those two different areas that, you know, oceans are dark. Let's keep them dark. You know, don't put lights on the shore. I know in, in Portland, Oregon, they're doing a lot of this work. How do we stay in that lane of, between those two things, Dr. Davies? It's, it's very difficult because actually, you know, in my opinion, one, one of those things, which is you quite rightly identify in terms of preserving night skies, uh, it, which is absolutely essential, it, it kind of runs counter to being able to, um, to restore dark skies in the cities and, and the reason for that is essentially it's about cultural cultural norms and access to the naturally dark environment one of the things that we risk by kind of ring, ring fencing off areas of the wilderness that are, that are already dark and saying these are our, our our pristine dark sky habitats is actually they're only accessible to certain demographics mm. in society mm-hmm. and um it, it makes it very difficult for us to be able to then make the case for restoring darkness um, to city populations if those city populations, by and large, don't have access for one reason or another to naturally dark landscapes. So I think that the, the bridge between those two um, is probably some form of social mobilisation 
being able to ensure that people that live in um, urban centres have the opportunity to um, to participate in and experience wilderness or the tranquility that we talked about earlier. I think I think there is a, a bridge that needs to be formed um, in order to um, build the advocacy for dark sky restoration in cities using the the dark wildernesses of the countryside. The it's interesting. The I I, I don't know who it was. I was listening. I listen to podcasts as well. So thank you for listening to this one. But I also enjoy podcasts. And I remember. I can't remember where it was. It was a conversation though about climate change. It wasn't about this topic, but an environmental topic. And what the one of the guests was saying that the 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 key to reducing pollution is for everyone to become wealthy. The richer we get, the less we we will or the more not the less we will pollute, but the more we will care about environmental issues. Right. And so I think that's kind of similar to what you're talking about there is that is that if we give access to people to these these experiences and, and we show them that what they're missing, that's the whole point is that I, I think there, were, there was some statistic that came up on this show where, you know, 70 percent of Americans have not seen the Milky Way, you know, in their entire lives. And I can't I don't think that's true for Canadians, because, again, we have much more access to to um, to, to pristine, dark environments. Um, but yes, I mean, there's almost like, it's almost like people don't know what they're missing, Professor Smythe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think there is still a great case in terms of astronomy, just in, in reconnecting mm. people with just the, the astonishing beauty that is the night sky. Uh, you know, and all, all the different things that you can see in the night sky. It's not just about stars. It's not just about the moon, you know, but there's, you know, there's other um, elements of the sky glow. There's the aurora uh, borealis. If you're fortunate enough to live in a northern or southern enough uh, country to be able to, to to view it on a regular basis in the winter time, so it's 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 reconnecting ourselves, I think, with the with with the natural cycles, which actually are demonstrated best in the night sky. The difference between the moon. In the mm. winter time, in the northern hemisphere, winter is very, very different to the moon in the summertime mm. in the mid latitude. So it's the sun is that the moon is much lower in the horizon. So, you know, most people don't realize it's just mm. these basic, basic things about how, uh, you know, the night sky is governed, about the waxing and the waning of the moon. You know, a lot of these things have just been completely lost. Um, and I think, you know, it, I think there we, we can do something about this, um, and I think you know wiser wiser lighting is, has got to be the, the the way ahead. Wiser, okay. Hopefully, we can accomplish that. Lighting industry, embrace this issue. We can do this, uh, Doctor Davies. What I can't believe we spoke for fifty minutes. This one went the fastest in a long time. So, Doctor Davies, um, do you have any final thoughts uh, before I go to Professor Smythe? Um, I, I, the only final thought I have at the moment is that, you know, I've been working in this field for over 10 years now, and I still feel like it's just the beginning. Mm. Professor Smythe. I, well, I would agree with, with Tom. I think this is a tremendously exciting area to be involved with or have the, have the privilege of being involved with, actually, and actually starting to talk uh, not just to other scientists. Uh, you know, it's very cross and trans and multidisciplinary this this mm. science you know i mm. i'm a physicist by training um i'm a, a meteorologist in my heart 
but you know this is something that I've kind of you know st- discovered late in well not late in my career but sort of in the middle of my career mm. and and it's you know it's something that's 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 very exciting because it's kind of relatively new and I think that not only are we working right across the disciplines in science but actually having now the opportunity to reach out into policy making and mm. reach out into to people who make decisions about how our lives are lived through the way that we light our, our night skies and how just the the, the ecosystem uh, of, of urban environments changes. I think I think there's what if there's one quote uh, that I'd like to kind of maybe close on is by a guy called Jeffrey West, uh, who's mm. a Brit who lives over in the States. Um, and he had uh, he, he wrote this book called uh, Universal Laws of, of Life and Death in Organisms, Cities and Companies. It was about scale, how everything scales. Mm. And he used this beautiful image of the Iberian Peninsula, so the, the, the area around uh, Spain and Portugal, and how you can see them from the International Space Station lit up. Uh, you know, from space. So those photons being wasted into space. Mm. And he said, we've moved out of the Anthropocene. So this this era that we that we now think that we live in, which is the Anthropocene, where we've had a big impact, a massive impact on our um, ecosystems. And he said, we've now entered the Urbanocene. Hmm. I think that's a wonderful way of summing up, Hmm. you know, that actually he used the example of the artificial light pollution that you could see from the International Space Station and said, mm. we have now transitioned into this mm. um, this new epoch. So I think I'd, I'd like to leave it there. Well, folks, and I want to invite the lighting industry again to embrace this issue. You know, everyone has their own way to give, folks. Um, Professor Smythe and, and Dr. Davies are obviously, you know, researching and working in the field. This is their career. Um, you know, we're doing podcasts. They're, they're, I have the honor of their time here today. And some people volunteer. Other people are advocates. And, you know, other people, they just get out their credit card every now and then. And if you feel like you want to help out this movement, I think a great place, there's two places you can do it with the Letting and Darkness Foundation. You go to RestoringDarkness.com. You can donate just generally to the foundation and you can help us out. Why not become a monthly donor? That's right. That would really help us actually. 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. Hey, if you're and if you're super loaded, you could even do 500 or 1000 bucks a month. We'd be happy. We're going to put it to great use. Um, the other thing is that if you want to help out a specific cause, you can go to Darkness Campaigns and click that right now. We're doing uh, we're helping out the folks in Utah save Wasatch back dark skies. You can contribute directly to that work in 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 um, Haber City, Wasatch County, Utah. That's right. And the Lighting and Darkness Foundation will match your donation dollar for dollar up to 3500 bucks. So, restoringdarkness.com. We also want to give thanks to our corporate sponsor of Luma. Go to evluma.com. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky-friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. Your customer cares about light pollution. Suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Area Max with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.